Uh, welcome back to the DCP podcast. Um, after hours, we all have drinks tonight. Um, with us today is Cedric Owens and Justin Bowie. I'll let them go ahead and introduce themselves. Justin. Hey, everyone. My name is Justin. I'm currently an offensive security engineer at Zoom. Uh, previously worked at SpectreOps, doing red teaming there as well. Um, and have recently just taken kind of an affinity to kind of Mac OS things. I previously did lots and lots of Windows stuff, um, but kind of because of where I work now, like touching a lot of Mac OS systems and kind of have started diving into that. Cool deal. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Cedric. I'm on the red team at Zoom with Justin. Um, I actually just joined a few weeks ago, so I'm super stoked to be on this team. Prior to Zoom, I was at uh, doing red team at Twilio as well as at Box. I actually come from a background uh, where, I, where I was uh, actually a defender doing incident response threat detection. Started off in Windows environments. And then as I pivoted my way over to the offensive side, I found myself in these Silicon Valley tech companies, which have very little windows and like 80% or more Mac endpoints. So that kind of forced me in the, the Mac direction, which I really enjoy now since there's a lot of unexplored territory there, so to speak. Actually, yeah, that's a that's a great point, Cedric. I always tell people that are just getting started out, it's like you can go and try to like make your name doing assuming that your goal is to make your name that's like a you know, proxy for whatever right so, but like stake your claim in like windows active directory research where there's tons of people that have already done it and a lot is it's really well known or you could like find something that's more niche um that maybe is a little bit more or less explored and there's like so much room for discovery in those in those areas and it seems like mac is a great one i mean the cloud uh like I, I assume in like at a company like zoom there's probably lots of opportunities for like how do we do security in the cloud whether that's offensive or defensive or uh preventative or whatever it may be um but it's kind of like one of the things that i always try to tell people getting into the field is it's like you got to have some breadth across the windows stuff right just generally speaking but like also if you're trying to pick your niche like find the thing that is less explored and that like i say the barrier to entry or the barrier to expert is much less in some in some areas than it is in others, right? So like Windows, the barrier to relative expert, whatever that is, um, is probably really high because a lot of people have been looking at that for a long time. But like something like Mac is, it's been around for a long time, but we're just kind of really starting to get into it from a security perspective in the past five years or so. So there's lots of area to kind of like learn things. And I, I saw um, Sarah Edwards posted something. I, it, I think it was one of you guys actually, maybe it was Justin, was like corresponding with her on Twitter, and uh, oh saying, yeah, hey. um, mm -hmm. and you were, you said something like, "Hey, uh, you really like in, like I watched your talk at uh, Objective by the Sea, and like I was really interested in some of the things that you came up with." And she basically was like, "Well, there's there's a ton of p lists and uh, different databases on Macs that nobody's explored or even looked into right now, and I know that they exist, but it's just like there's so much that I don't have time to look at it all. So if you're interested in this, like I can give you some things to look at and like." figure out what's going on right so uh that's just an example of kind of that that feeling of like there's lots that you could look into um lots of unexplored territory like cedric was talking about yeah for sure it used to be that um enterprises uh, at least in my opinion like you just didn't find mac right you they were mostly like maybe there were exceptions to environments where like certain subset of developers might get a mac and so like it was kind of an afterthought like you they're just these dangling devices in an environment but now you're finding where they're, they're the vast majority and there's enterprise management solutions that are out now for mac whereas there really wasn't you know years before so the tables have definitely turned and is bringing more people like myself and justin and 
other members of our team um, at Zoom that kind of focus in that area is kind of bringing that stuff to the forefront. Yes, and you recently just did a talk at OBTS, correct, Cedric? Yes, I did. Yep. Could you kind of talk about like what you kind of presented on while being out there? And by the way, Hawaii looked phenomenal. Man. Uh, was it you that went parasol? You posted a picture of yourself parasailing, I think, on Twitter. Yeah, my uh, me and my wife went after she talked me into it because I don't like heights. No, <laughs> it's kind of peaceful up there, isn't it? It was very peaceful. I just yeah. didn't look down because I don't like heights. So it's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. just look at that mountain. Like, don't look down. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but it was by far uh, the best conference experience I've had. Very intimate, uh, just people you converse with and you follow. Um, and I was honored to have the opportunity to come there and talk about a bug that I found in macOS earlier this year in the springtime, um, for, which was around Gatekeeper, which for those who are listening, if you're not familiar with Mac, Gatekeeper is the main solution that Apple has engineered on Mac to, to prevent uh, malicious software from executing. So um, that was the bug. That, there was a bug I found to get around that for red team payloads and allow us to um, that, you know, have people detonate those and we get access. And so I was kind of talking about like what that looks like, how I found it. And I partnered up with uh, Patrick Wardle and Jaron Bradley to, to kind of give a broader view. Like I provided the bug and insight on how I found the bug. Patrick dug into the, the bowels of the OS to talk about the vulnerability. And then Jaron Brown talked about how bad guys were using it. So it was a really mm-hmm. neat cross collaboration. Right. And so so gate uh, just to expand on Gatekeeper, and I appreciate you kind of being like for those that aren't familiar, because it's probably safe to assume most people aren't familiar with some of these like technologies, yeah. um, including including myself to like uh, some degree. Um, but Gatekeeper, is that the thing to where like when you try to run an application that you didn't download from the App Store or whatever, it says like, hey, are you sure that like you have to go into like system preferences and say like, yeah, I want to I want to allow this to run. Is that what Gatekeeper is? Exactly. Yep. It, it basically checks in a nutshell on Mac OS when files are downloaded via the browser or um, AirDrop or a few different other methods. Mac OS appends this this extended attribute to the file hmm. called com uh, com.apple.quarantine. And so what Gatekeeper does is it looks for certain file types that are more executable in nature. So it won't, won't care about like text files and things like that. But if it's a, a Mako binary, which is like a Mac OS executable, if it's an app bundle and a star package, like more executable in nature, and it has that attribute, then it actually steps in when a user tries to detonate it to see if it's been signed with a valid developer ID and if it's been notarized, meaning has, has it been submitted to Apple so that Apple can scan it with its notarization engines and look for, for malware. And then if it passes those two, it will allow it to run. If not, it will block it until you, like, you can right-click and open it to get around it. But in nice. a nutshell. And so does your does your bug uh, basically cause it not to check that extended attribute or how's that how did it work? Yeah, so the the, the known thing um, in the red team space for a while was that Gatekeeper did not check certain file types like mm. scripts. Uh, surprisingly, scripts was one of them, like Python, Bash, Perl, all those different scripting languages. So my bug essentially it looked at the directory structure of an, a normal app bundle where you have the name of the app and there's a contents folder. Then there's a Mac OS folder, and then there's an, usually a Mako binary at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Since Macos are evaluated by Gatekeeper, my, my thought process was, well, let's swap that out at the bottom of the directory, and let's put a script there, which is not evaluated by Gatekeeper. And it worked where you downloaded it, and Gatekeeper just ignored it. And now it's like if, if I, as an unsuspecting user, just double-click on it, it just runs without 
the security feature being enabled, or you can potentially get it to execute through, um, I don't know, what's the like the popular like launch uh, launch daemons or right like exactly yep, yeah you could do it that way. And what what made it so significant is there's no like you think about security products like you you have all these different vendors, and if one sucks, you can just go to another one, right? But what makes a gatekeeper bypass so significant is there's no substitute for it. It's run mm-hmm. by Apple. Only Apple uh, controls that. So if you bypass it, you know, you you basically can run unfettered until uh, Apple pushes a patch to stop it. Oh, well. And how, whenever diving deep into these like concepts and these components that correlate with Apple, how difficult is it? Because I know Apple's documentation is like not near as built out as Microsoft's. So whenever you that's one thing I kind of want to talk about is like the documentation and how it kind of maybe potentially hinders red teaming in the sense of developing different tools because like a lot of times conceptually speaking if we want to attempt to run an attack or we want to attempt to run an action it's like pretty simple just like deal with the win32 apis create your own code and just kind of run it on windows um like mac os conceptually same same thing it's just the documentation isn't there um and a lot of features in terms of like apis and things like that um so how difficult is it to actually confirm your theories whenever diving into those um concepts is like the bug you're talking about yeah uh, it's definitely that way for mac where the documentation is pretty pretty lacking um ironically it's kind of a running joke but it's true and, and justin can, can attest to it too in the red team space we learn more from each other's code than we do from apple's documentation so i'm like huh how did yeah, cody 100%. thomas like look at cody thomas's code how did he invoke this in javascript oh this is how you call that api like you find that uh, each of us finds different things out, whether it's trial and error, or we get a little yeah. bit of documentation, we try things, and we find something on Stack Overflow, whatever. And we kind of learn from each other's code a bit more than we do Apple's documentation. Right. So does, I'm assuming, like, I don't know much about the Mac, like, internal. So I'm just, if, like, I'm going to ask, like, probably a stupid question here, but the APIs that you're dealing with, are they similar or, like, the equivalent to Win32 APIs in window land, I assume? Yeah, I can speak just kind of like macOS APIs a little bit. Like I was, I'm currently like developing an implant basically for macOS written in Swift, which is going to interact with like a bunch of the kind of macOS APIs. And Swift's a lot um, like C sharp, I believe, right? Or no, it's a lot like C++. Yeah, I would, I would compare Swift to more to C sharp because it's kind of like a higher right. level language. On the macOS side, kind of the lower level language is like, of course, C and C++, but there's also Objective-C, okay. uh, which is kind of like what all of the APIs um like currently target. So like if I want to do like a lower a lower level thing in Swift, I'm usually calling Objective C code. Okay. Cool. Sounds like a cool conference name or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Objective by the C. But yeah, it's like very similar to C sharp in the sense that like if I need those lower level APIs from like Objective C or C or C <coughs> I can just P invoke those like functions in a sense. Like I can um have those lower level functions in my code and I can like uh, basically, like have a bridging header that translates those APIs to my higher level um, Swift programming language, and I do that like multiple times in my implant. Like needed to reference kind of lower level APIs. Yeah, just to, um, for those listeners that might not know what like pinvoke is or uh, managed languages. So there's there's different types of languages. One one's kind of category of of programming languages would be like managed languages, and C sharp is kind of like the uh, canonical version canonical language on uh windows like java would be an equivalent um and the the idea is is that they the language itself abstracts a lot of the complexities of doing like memory management and things like that and uh 
but ultimately what it does is it interfaces with like the lower level APIs, which are unmanaged, right? And so those those APIs are responsible for handling memory and uh, doing different allocations and things like that. Um, P invoke is the interface that allows you to, at least in C sharp, I don't know if you were saying P invoke because it was like just a common term or if it's literally called. Uh, oh yeah, I was just kind of comparing the two. Gotcha. Yeah, okay, yeah, concept, so, yeah, so in C sharp, P invoke or yeah, .NET, I guess, uh, P invoke is basically the, the interface that allows the managed language to call um, the unmanaged APIs, like the Win32 API, for instance. Um, and so what Justin's basically saying is the there's probably some library that Swift has access to that has a bunch of like pre-configured functions that allow you to do certain things. Uh, but if you, yep. let's say, Swift doesn't have the capability to do X, right? But you know that there's an API, like a Unix API that allows you to do that, then you can just use whatever that functionality that's similar to pinvoke is to extend the capability of Swift um, by making that low, like creating that relationship between the unmanaged and the managed code. Yeah, exactly. And that relationship kind of gets bridged basically like you all you have to do is match the types from like the lower level, level language to the higher level language. Yeah. And if you match, match all the types appropriately and kind of like the sizes of everything, uh, then you can just call the lower level stuff um, just the same way you would on Windows. Gotcha. Cool. And what, yeah, so there's like, um, I don't know how it works actually. There's like, there's Unix APIs, like for instance, to open a file, like you would call an API, I think, called open or something like that. Um, is yeah. are there like Mac APIs like that are like a different series of APIs? Yep. So so that's super interesting. So obviously, like Mac OS is built on BSD. So you can like call all of those like very BSD like Linux things, like uh, yeah, like open file or like exec VE and stuff okay. like that. Yep. Like all of those like Linux things. But then there's also um I'm not sure if this is correct, but there's like the Darwin component of it, which is like mm -hmm. the Darwin kernel. And that has kind of all the Objective-C kind of APIs that are, a, I would say, a little even higher level than the BSD or like just kind of slightly different from the BSD. So that's going to interact with like um, like specific, like the process class within the Objective-C API. It's going to interact with kind of like the macOS application. So if you open like Zoom or you open Slack.app and you run like a process listing there, you're going to get back like Slack.app, um, like Zoom.app, things like that. But if you do a BSD process listing, you're going to pull back all of the daemons and things like that. So like mm. um, the daemons that are not kind of macOS specific, but all of like the underlying like Linux daemons and things like that. Yeah. And so there's kind of like two different process listings and it's this weird kind of combination of BSD and Objective-C. Just like everything, if you don't understand the relationship, you might be thinking that you're asking one question and you're really asking a completely different question. Yeah, yeah, yeah then exactly. It's like, um, Cocoa APIs also, you know, which are native ways to call uh, APIs related to like apps and uh, app development, things like mm -hmm. that on Mac. So you've got all these different types of APIs that are present, um, like Justin mentioned. Gotcha. I need I, I need you two. I need Richie, Cyrus. I need Chris Ross, and Patrick all to write a Mac internals book. Appreciate it. it. Might be helpful. I think the the best Mac internals book that like I've referenced and kind of used is called this. I don't. My background's gonna make it super yeah. hard, but this like OS internals book by uh, Jonathan Levin. He has like three volumes. He has like volume one, which is user mode. Uh, volume two, I think, deals with like kernel stuff, and then volume three deals with security and insecurity. Uh, I, I hear that most people kind of uh, mainly use the user mode book and the security and insecurity book mm. because of specifically because um, Mac OS 10.16, like Big Sur, uh, Apple actually kicked everyone out of the kernel besides themselves. And so like kernel development is just kind of non-existent at this point because Apple. 
Yeah, so you used to be able to have like kernel extensions, and that's how like a lot of security products were able to collect telemetry. But they basically, uh, I don't, I don't know why, but maybe because people were writing bad kernel extensions and uh, blue screening or whatever the equivalent is, um, crashing the system, or maybe they just didn't want people to have the opportunity to run code in the kernel because that that's fraught with with potential issues. But yeah, so they they kicked everybody out. So now everybody had to create their own kind of method for collecting telemetry, which like that's. I know a topic that Johnny was kind of interested in talking about is like, what does the visibility look like? I know that uh, when they kicked everybody out of the out of the kernel, they added the, I think it's called enterprise ESF. security, yeah, ESF enterprise yeah. security framework. Is that what it is? Endpoint security. Yep. Endpoint. Yeah. Yep. And I think uh, like Chris Ross wrote, um, like kind of a proof of concept kind of Sysmon type utility that allowed you to collect certain types of telemetry from there, right? So it's like process <laughs> process creations, uh, like file module creation, Like file creations, yeah. like file, like any like file uh, kind of interactions, like deletions, renames, moves, things like that. Gotcha, cool. So there's, there's kind of like, as they move forward, there's some good uh, telemetry sources, right? That are built in that give you kind of reliable, reliable information. Yeah, it's kind of iffy. So yeah, like Apple, like, <laughs> Because because they kicked everyone out of uh, the kernel, obviously, mm -hmm. like now there's this new thing, endpoint security framework. I would compare it to kind of like ETW or event tracing for Windows, where okay. you can kind of hook into those providers and get certain events and things like that. So Apple has kind of released um, these different like events that you could hook into. So like process events, uh, like memory load, like memory load events, mm -hmm. uh, file events, things like that. Um, and you can kind of hook into those. Like that's exactly what like. Um, so Patrick Wardle has like a file monitor and like a process monitor tool that kind of hooks into those. And then Chris built um, Atmon kind of based on that yep. to get like specific events he wanted and to enrich data like specifically how he wanted. Um, the issue I kind of see with ESF is that it's the events are not specific enough. So like it can you can generate a lot of events, like the all the file events and things like that. So when you're trying to like detect, I don't know, like a file, uh, like a file read, like opening a file handle to something like yep. there are just so many like file reads and like it's happening so often, like on the back yeah. end of Mac OS that it becomes hard to hunt. Like you, it's hard to come up with a good detection rule. And I kind of like ran into this with uh, my conference talk. I tried to add like a defensive portion to it, but it's like, I, I wrote the defensive portion and I'm like, you can detect file reads like this, but in an enterprise, like this wouldn't scale. Like there's no way this would scale. Is it is it that yeah, the exactly. like attributes within the events just do not have enough context or enough like to distinguish like one event from another per se? And it's just like you have a lot of the same kind of events that it's hard to like say, hey, like this is the process that did this. I guess it's just like the number of events, Pure like noise. maybe like yeah, there's uh, just so much noise. Like from from normal like stuff touching like these files as well that it's hard to like pick out like this is bad, this is good, like. It's hard to get that baseline, I guess, unless yeah. you do a lot, a lot of research and baselining. I know. Yeah, so that, I know when Chris first started writing Appmon, he had an issue to where it's like, uh, if you wrote the Appmon output to a file, there was like a you're in like a loop basically to where like if you're monitoring file create, like he ran into an issue where it's like I'm monitoring oh, file creations, but I'm writing the output to a file or like file modifications or whatever. And now I'm writing to a, a file for every event, and then every event creates a file modification. <laughs> it's like that—that's funny. Yeah, I could definitely see that happening. I've so had like, a bit uh, more success with the process monitor as opposed to file monitor. Mm -hmm. like you're saying, file monitor is just—it's just too many events um, that get dumped. You even lose them if you don't filter correctly. Like you just mm -hmm. start dropping events because of the, the pace that it it's writes. Not performing enough. Um, yeah. 
But for process monitor, certain events like notify, things called ES notify exec, uh, those are pretty good if you want like command line detections. And then there's ES notify fork, I think that can also help with like parent child relationships. Mm. Uh, those are really the main two event types I've had success. But like Justin mentioned, it's still a lot to be desired there. Yeah. Would you guys, so back to the kind of documentation thing, what I'm very curious about this is, um, you know, the detection response process, I, I like to think of whenever someone has an idea within detection response, like they kind of test it against Windows environments. So it's kind of like everyone's go-to the majority of the time to say, hey, is like my idea or my methodology actually work? And so one thing I was talking to Jared about today is, does that process have to be tuned or changed because the lack of A, telemetry within macOS and also be the documentation that uh, Apple just doesn't give or that isn't out there and the continuous changes that happen and are not being documented as well. Um, because like oftentimes, like I said earlier, like if someone wants to run something, they write the Win32 API, you can even mess with like the NT functions, like all that, the majority of that is documented. Sure, in kernel mode, like a lot of that isn't documented. Um, but like, I mean, just shit, like open up WinDebug and you can just like find what you want and then like you can print that out and you know what you're dealing with, right? And so like that's not necessarily too difficult to deal with. But in terms of Apple, would you guys say, like, I guess, first off, does lack of documentation hurt your guys' tradecraft in the sense of red teaming? And or, because um, it sounds like it definitely hurts the ability to do defensive things. Um, or would you guys say it kind of give you, gives you guys a leg up? Because if you find something you can utilize, you can just keep using it because there's not a lot of, like, optics and there's not a lot of documentation on it per se. And so that tradecraft you can just kind of trust will be around for a while and the defenders are kind of left in the dust there. Yeah, um, I would definitely say it's it's a combination of both. Um, like it's definitely the side of it where it benefits, like you find something and until you go out and document, you know, like write a blog post and, and do talks or whatever, share it out. It's, uh, it's probably going to keep flying under the radar. Um, but then of course it sucks on the development side when we're trying to hook into some of these APIs and like, how do you call them? Uh, how do you invoke them? Uh, so things, so I'd say it kind of cuts both ways. Um, so that's something else I was going to mention. Oh, well, it'll come back to me, but yeah, I, I agree both, both sides. Cool. Yeah. Documentation is kind of hard to come by like on Mac OS, like sure. Like the classes and kind of like all of the fields within the classes and those kind of methods, like on, uh, Apple's documentation that it gives you like a description of kind of like what it is and stuff, but it doesn't, and it tells you like what type of object it is, like whether it's yeah. an int or a string or things like that. But like one thing I've found that coming from like the Windows side, like if you look up open process or open process token, Microsoft straight up has like a beautiful code snippet that you can copy and paste and like you can get a POC working very, very quickly. Yep. On the Mac OS side, like Apple doesn't have too many code snippets for things that I personally have been wanting to. Like there's no code snippet for like, Oh, like I want to do a process listing. How do I do that? Um, mm -hmm. So like it, the method is described, but there's no easy like code snippet. Like the easy code snippet is hopefully someone ha has done it and it's on Stack Overflow. Like Apple itself does not have that documentation or like maybe they do for some stuff, but for some of the stuff that I found, like I haven't found it on Apple. Yeah. Cause like one thing that like I can definitely see is like, I understand, I can kind of understand like, say if like Apple on purpose is kind of like hiding that information because of, you know, red team, red, red team tradecraft. But also like a lot of sensors, a lot of like blue team tools have to leverage those components as well. I mean, like at the end of the day, like I really do believe that like it's kind of like <clears throat> we talk about this quite a lot. Like 
like uh, malicious activity is just, you know, user interaction with operating system components and functionality that is exposed to them. Um, same thing with blue team activity. Like if you're wanting to look into things, you're just, a, you're just a, uh, interacting with those components and functionalities that exposes to that are exposed to you by the operating system. So if you don't know those components exist and that functionality exists, then it's super hard to um, interact with those components in the sense of like seeing optics. And so like a lot of times I can see like if it's not documented, sure. And you find something that's super cool. Um, but it also hurts like the sensors, especially since Apple doesn't necessarily have their own, uh, you know, event sensor or anything per se. So um, it's kind of hard to have the optics or have any really a lot of good protection. Like I know Microsoft has, like I know, I think Microsoft Carbon Black, a lot of those have sensors for Mac. It's just like, are they, I don't know this, but like, are they actually like have close interaction with Apple and like Apple gives them a little bit of some, something? Do they have like special insight? If not, then they're kind of just like stuck in the dust like the rest of us, you know what I mean? In terms of the ability to build out those optics abilities. Yeah, I'm not aware of any uh, like relationship between some of the EDR and next-gen AV vendors and, and Apple. From what I've seen, it's like the vendors, and this is just my perspective, but the vendors are kind of like the rest of us just trying to figure out how do you get these events? Like um, now that I have the endpoint security framework, what should I be pulling? There's so many different events. Like how do I give an analyst something useful and actionable mm-hmm. yeah. so it's very immature and early in the in the process at least at least from what i've seen absolutely yeah, there's like a question of like what things am i interested in conceptually and then can i actually generate telemetry that notifies me that that thing happened which those yeah. are completely different problems and you can't like i don't know you can't solve question number two if you haven't solved question number one which is like what do i want and then can i get it kind of thing that and like, so security researchers and um, kind of sensor developers are all on the same playing field on macOS. Like we're all pulling from in, like the endpoint security framework. Like we're all playing on the same like ball, like ball field, like field mm-hmm. basically. And I like, I don't know the internals of it, but like Chris Ross was working on updates to Atmon. And for some reason, like when you pull back too many events, like ESF starts dropping events, like for oh, wow. no reason. So like, he'll be, he'll be look, like digging for malicious activity that he knows he's done. But like the event is not being reported back from ESF mm. because like I, I don't know like maybe there's too many events like some are just being dropped by ESF but like that seems like it would be a large issue like but it's transparent especially for like an EDR vendor you know it's yeah. transparent though that it that it's dry like it doesn't say hey by the way I dropped a bunch of stuff it's just like, oh oh yeah it doesn't tell you it's you just, just like, know you're, because you're the looking... thing that you know that you did isn't being reported which is yeah exactly which is yeah. a, a crazy problem like I don't even know like how. EDRs would tackle something like that if Chris like Chris isn't even pulling all the events he's just pulling like kind of events he's looking for yeah, and it's still yeah. dropping so I don't know if there's like some secret sauce that allows you to pull like all the events like consistently with with ESF I always wonder like um so you're talking about the file problem right so it's like if I just monitor all file so there there's a filtering mechanism that's built into ESF right I don't know how ro- robust it is but it's like a configuration type thing I think um at least Chris I don't know if it's built in but Chris was doing some sort of filtering uh, with Appmon to say like I don't want like you said I don't want everything but I want these these things right um, I'm I'm wondering there's always like this idea of like um, direct and indirect kind of telemetry right so oh, direct man. <laughs> gonna get Johnny all excited so direct telemetry is like um, I like uh, on Windows there's like a 4697 event that says a I think that's what the number is but it it says a service was created right so that's like a di- 
what I would call like direct telemetry or um, explicit telemetry, intrinsic maybe, um, intrinsic oh telemetry. I don't know. Well, it's it's either intrinsic or extrinsic. Words. I can never remember which one's which. Um, but we'll say direct because it's easier. So it's direct. Like, hey, it's telling me that a service was created. But you could also get indirect telemetry, which is um, a registry key writes to a specific registry key that indicates that a service was created, right? And so like, um, and like, if you monitor that registry key and a key is created, then you can infer from that that a service was created, right? But it's not directly telling you that. It's directly telling you about a registry key, but you just happen to know what that registry key means. So I think for like the file thing, there's potentially a similar indirect value to where you could identify like certain plists, for instance, or certain file locations that have uh, specific use cases, right? And like, um, we don't know what all the use cases are, but we certainly know some of the valuable use cases. And we can we can infer that if this file is modified, then that means that something of you know some value or some some we can infer the meaning of what that modification means. I guess yeah. it's, it's similar to like a forensics approach to where you're saying like um, on Windows, hey, if uh, if a prefetch is created for um, cmd.exe, that means that somebody executed cmd.exe. And I could go in and find the most recent time that or most recent X number of times that it was executed. But similarly, you could do the same thing with like, if this, I don't know, plist seems to be the, the most, it's kind of like the registry, I guess, to some degree. Um, it's like if this plist file was modified, then I can infer that at the time that that was modified, that something something happened, um, depending on what the plist file represents. Yeah, Mac is interesting because um, while we're kind of moving forward as an industry with ESF and figuring out how to use it, there's still other sources on Mac OS that a lot of us probably are not as quite familiar with. Like there's a quarantine events v- v2 database mm. that actually records like what was what was downloaded right so that that's a helpful source if you're doing an investigation then there's like um a receipts database as well um that shows like uh every kind of you can basically marry everything that was downloaded and everything that was executed and kind of match those two if you're doing like kind of walking backwards to see what happened so um i think there's there's like a combination of like using ESF to try to do real-time detection. Yep. Then also kind of finding what, what are these other sources on the system that exist that I can pull from to maybe walk backwards in time and see like what happened, what led to this and how do we get here? I think there's like uh, the way that I kind of view it is there's like what sources do I have that I can leverage at scale to identify I should be looking at this, right? And usually... By definition, those sources are low low resolution, right? Because they have to be they have to be low resolution because you're collecting it at scale, right? Um, but once you once you understand, I should look at this thing, then you can go into a higher resolution telemetry source, which might be that like that quarantine database, right? But like generally speaking, the contents of a file aren't something you can you can use at scale because like you're not going to collect that for every system. So it's like I need a I need a reason that I should be looking at that in the first place. But once I have that reason, right, whatever the reason may be, I now have a completely different world or different level of resolution that I could use when I'm investigating it. And then there's like another concept of forensics, which is let's just assume that everything else failed. How can I reconstruct what happened? Right. Which is um, like kind of that's the reversing kind of question, which you're talking about, which is like, can I build back the information? And like one of the ideas that I kind of uh, proselytize, I guess, is that like if you don't collect it in real time, then you have to rely on forensics, but there's only a subset of, of events that you can rebuild, right? So like you're, you're limited to what you can rebuild and there's only 
there's a limited number of events that you can rebuild, which is kind of like the if a tree falls in the forest and, and it doesn't make a sound like or and no one's here there to hear it doesn't make a sound. Well, the, the reality is, is probably, but we weren't there and we don't have anything that we can use to rebuild the sound. Right. But we we yeah. can look and see a fallen tree and we could assume that a sound was made. Right. Yeah, I think it's. Yeah. Go ahead, Justin. Oh, sorry. Oh, I've got like this great comparison between like, so you were talking about like direct uh, data sources. So like a service being created on Windows versus yeah. the indirect like registry being created. Sure. So like on the Mac OS side of things, there are these things called launch agents and launch daemons, which a lot of people use for kind of persistence. Um, these things are basically um, like, like, it's, like the name applies like daemons that launch when like a user starts up there. Uh, when a user logs in, like these things are going to happen. It's like an auto run type thing. And so they happen in like very specific folders and they can they can only happen in these folders. So if you can monitor for file uh, rights to this folder, uh, the folders include things like library slash launch agents. That's going to be like uh, the system ones. And then there's going to be user preference ones, which are going to be like tilde slash library slash launch agents. If you monitor for file rights in this location, you can basically detect and the, and the file right is very specific. It's like a plist file specifically that mm -hmm. has to land in this location. So you can indirectly detect kind of launch agents and launch daemons by looking for those file rights. So that's there's no direct way to detect launch agents and launch daemons, mm. but there is that indirect kind of file right to detect yeah, and, them. And so through one of the problems with uh, indirect is often it's less uh, it's lower resolution than direct, right? So like a forty six ninety seven, for instance, will tell you, hey, a service was created. Here's the name of the service. Here's the binary that's executed by that service. As to where if you are monitoring the registry key. You only get the name of the service because that happens to be the name yeah. of the registry key. You have to like manually go to each value. And yeah, see yeah. So you'd have to do there, some yeah. like correlation thing with indirect. Yeah. So there's yeah, a, yeah, say, there's a higher burden, side. right? Yeah, um, same think, thing. Yep. Same thing with your launch daemon example. Is you, I, I assume that the plist file is named the name of the launch daemon, but that I'm making that yeah, up. So, so the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So something you wouldn't, like that, you wouldn't know like, what the you wouldn't know what the app that's being executed as a result of the launch daemon is, for instance. Yeah, you'd have to pull the plist file and like look at like there's a inside the plist file there's like an onload command like onload attribute or something mm -hmm. that determines that that's gonna be loaded up, and then there's going to be like um like a path to something and then you can also put arguments things like that but you wouldn't know unless you pull the contents of that isn't file. there like a signature or like a, a hash or something that represents I, I think in the launch damage you get something about whether it's signed i think as well in the uh, I, i'm not sure i, I want to say you're right, done off the top of my head uh, what's the um os query os query when you query yeah. the launch daemons and launch launch agents i think there's a I think there's that information. So I assume that that's included in the file, but it might not be. And uh, one other thing, kind of piggybacking on what Justin just said, that that's also interesting. But again, it depends on your capabilities and what like what you can do uh, on your system. But sometimes those uh, info.plist files will have interesting entries. Like, like you mentioned, they're calling commands and uh, running arguments. So sometimes like if you see curl or the word exec in there in, in a plist file, that's in it that's configured by a launch agent or Python or Ben SH. Like those can be things you can key on to say, huh, this is may not necessarily be be malicious, but maybe it goes in the interesting bucket to kind of yep. dig to this system yep. a bit more, right? I'm I'm a big fan of like the concept of direct and, and indirect data because um I think by default as defenders, obviously you want to utilize the direct data if it's there because hopefully it holds enough context similar to the uh, uh, the service creation event that Jared was talking to. But what I think also the issue with 
um, only relying on direct data um, is or direct telemetry is that is typically going to be the target of any red teamer or adversary in the sense of evading telemetry, mm -hmm. right? So um, understanding indirect data is almost to me, it's almost like, hey, this adds maybe some additional context. And yes, it's going to be a little more difficult to correlate all this data together. Um, but at the end of the day, I might get what the, the direct data gives me. But I kind of see it as like a, a, a fallback piece of data in the sense of, hey, like a red teamer said they bypass this sensor. Did you actually bypass all the data? Because if I like if you're able to and have the capability inside your environment to string all that capability together or all that telemetry together, then like you could you could make a custom detection in that case. Right. Um, and I, I find that very interesting. Like, for example, like I like to fall back on RPC because that's like the only thing in this world I really know at this point. Um, <laughs> But like, there's not much direct RPC data on the endpoint in terms of like scalable telemetry. And I'll say this now, and it's like, I'm okay saying this because I just down a Moscow mule. But like, <laughs> I get really kind of annoyed oftentimes when I see defensive blogs out there, and they're like, "Hey, by the way, like you can use ETW to detect this." It's like, at the reality is like, yes, there's sensors out there that tap into ETW, but to my knowledge, there's not anything that's scalable that allows me to pick. A, the ETW provider, and B, the keywords within that to like actually use at scale. So that being said, it's possible, is, but not practical. Exactly. Yeah. And so there is like, um, that's why I kind of, I consider ETW like research telemetry, unless like a sensor like Microsoft is actually logging it and utilizing it within their uh, sensor. Um, and I know Sysmon's using, utilizing some ETW as well, but still. Okay. So moving on. So like, that's why I think it's important to understand like indirect data because there are there's like an event on Windows like 5156 that is like specifically for the Windows filtering platform, but that interacts with RPC under the hood. And so like when RPC happens, that's kind of interacted with as well. So you can kind of leverage that. It's it's noisy, but I assume similar things live within Mac OS where it's like, hey, this might be the best. Like, um, Cedric, you're talking about, um, forgive me if I get this wrong, but I believe EX create. Uh, is it EX process notify and then EX um, is it fork notify? Is that correct? Yeah, yes, yes, notify uh, exec for execution okay. and yes, yes, uh, no, yes, notify fork or something like that yeah. for uh, kind of process forking. But yeah, yeah, I assume something there is similar where the sense like if you can't use one, you might be able to fall back on the other in the sense of getting that context. Um, and so that's what I, I find very interesting in terms of like direct and indirect data. Yeah, to, to Johnny's point about like the direct. So if uh, what I've seen anyway is a lot of attackers might look at the direct data for like a service creation, 4697, 7045 is yep. another example. And they'll say, if I, can, if I can get it to where I create a service and this event is not created, then I've evaded. Like that's, that's like the ultimate evasion, which is like I can do my thing and no telemetry is generated. That's like, that's ideal, right? There's other other places where you could evade um, that later in the process in the pipeline. But like, if you could just suppress telemetry generation, then like you don't have to worry about anything else because nobody ever knows that you did it. Um, that that would be the proverbial person who's not there when the tree falls over in the forest, right? Um, and and so like what what we found upon looking at this, this is something that Matt Graber helped kind of show us was that. Um, those event logs, those direct data sources for service creation are created as, as, uh, through the RPC, uh, server, right? So like if you use RPC to generate a service, then you generate these, um, event logs and like 
the vast majority of service creation uses RPC. And even if you don't know that you're using it, you're, you're probably using it. If you use like sc.exe to create it, if you use PowerShell, if you, whatever you do, you're using RPC. But uh, what we found is that ultimately the thing that matters for service creation is uh, that a registry key is written, right? And so like if you write the registry key and then you reboot the box, the system is going to assume that that registry key represents a valid service and it's going to load it up, right? And so, um, but if you just write the registry key directly, then no event is generated, right? And so there's, that's why these, like oftentimes, uh, these indirect data sources are actually more valuable, even though they're lower resolution and they take a little bit more work, they're more valuable because they're actually like more fundamental to the actual event that occurred, right? Um, and the, the, Kind of the interesting thing is that you can actually, you could actually compare and contrast the direct data source to the indirect data source, and any uh, divergence between the two is indicative of foul play of some sort, right? I guess. Um, like for instance, if a registry key was written in, under the services key, but no seventy forty five correlates with that or forty six ninety seven, that is suspicious, kind of like naturally, right? And so doesn't mean it's bad it just means that hey it's probably worth looking at but like there we talk about m multiple different optics that we can leverage from the windows side but unfortunately like the mac side in terms of actually like scalable optics just that isn't there and so another thing i was kind of thinking of is like people talk about like um oh in order to evade this type of telemetry inside of windows I'm just going to call the syscall directly, or I'm just going to like interact with the kernel. Well, it sounds like with Mac, you can't necessarily do that anymore. So my question is like, one, is the is it really evasion if the capability for the optics isn't really like exposed to uh, like sensors and things like that publicly? Um, and also when it comes to um, like interacting with those components, is it your only option? Or is there a way to actually bypass like, bypass in the sense of like okay i can only use this api let me utilize another because that's like there's a lot of different api sets out there potentially so, so to be blunt like edrs on mac os like they're not that good like we, yeah. we can straight up just drop like golang payloads swift payloads we can just drop stuff and if you, the user clicks it like it's free game like they're not going to be like oh like this is a anomalous network connection from like this like new process like they might be detecting things like osis script so osis script is something that uh, can compile compile like open source architecture, like scripting languages. I think that's what it is. They, that compiles things like JXA, JavaScript for automation, or Apple Script. And like, sure, maybe they're going to be like, hey, like pro if there's a process exec with OSI script, like, let's flag this. Like if it's like, let's check the command lines. If it's pulling some sort of JXA stuff down, like sketch. But if you drop binary and like it executes, like very rarely is EDR going to be able to like identify that this binary is malicious based on like, oh, this binary is like, interacting with this file or, or it, like it opened up a file handle to this file to download the keychain or something like that. Like all that behavioral stuff that like exists on windows, like it's far, far like from that on Mac OS. Hey Jared, was that how it was whenever windows first came around? Cause I know it was, that was back in your day. Wow. Okay. No. <laughs> yeah. So, so, okay. So there's like, there's multiple layers to EDR, right. Um, at like from, from what I've gathered, I'm not a red teamer, right? But what I've gathered from the red teamers that I know, a lot of times red teamers will talk about EDR capability based on its preventative capability. So like when I like when I try to do X, I'm not allowed to do that because CrowdStrike stops it or because Carbon Black stops it, right? That's that's how they talk about it. Um, yeah. And like from my perspective, 
the stopping it is great. Like, right. Like I'm going to take that when, when it happens, of course, but there's more to an EDR than just what it prevents because there's, uh, also detection, right? So detection and prevention sure. are complementary. Um, the, the problem is, is that like detection prevention, e- like it either happens or it doesn't, but detection, it's like, you can detect, you can alert on something, but also like, but not respond to the alert appropriately. And then everything falls apart. Right. So it doesn't matter. Um, and like there's there's a larger burden on the consumer of the EDR when it's when you're relying on the like telemetry generation aspect of it than when you are relying on the preventative aspect of it, I guess. Um, but what you're kind of saying is like um, on Mac OS, it's almost like the the burden is like the the EDRs are almost like we're we're providing you with the telemetry, but like you're gonna have to do the heavy lifting of the detection and the re, the remediation and the response. Hundred percent. And like. I'm gonna be honest. Most organizations aren't aren't capable or ready to do that part of yeah, it. Yeah, and like earlier, like Justin, you and I had a conversation about like a specific like window structure and why it wasn't like necessarily um, reasonable to ask a vendor to necessarily collect all this telemetry for every process and thread. Um, at this point, where Mac is in terms of documentation, um, a I guess my first question is: Are those APIs continuously changing when they release updates? Um, and B um is it really reasonable to like like ask vendors to really be able to interact and like collect this type of telemetry if app if like apple simply just not allowing it um yeah so honestly to my knowledge most like uh kind of defensive vendors are also just hooking into esf so they're yeah. limited by what mm-hmm. apple kind of provides as telemetry and like it's not like on the microsoft side where like oh like we're going to be like basically like putting hooks in and like, we're going to hook all these API calls and we're going to like inspect the memory, like inspect, like look for shell code for during like a virtual alloc call, things like that. Like, it's just kind of these events and they have to parse these events and write detection logic based on the, these events. To my knowledge, like I, I'm not I, like a EDR, like a sensor developer by any means. I have no idea how this works, but I have to imagine that API hooking is possible, is plausible yeah. on Mac OS, right? Like yeah, in I the also, same way. I honestly just think it's like, it's we're not there yet on the macOS yeah. side. Like, yeah. but right now we're still at the high level of like we're detecting like bad binaries, like or like living off the land binaries, doing like mm-hmm. weird stuff. But like I'm sure as like um, like macOS like offense and defense kind of grow, like it's going to go lower and lower. Like we're going to go from binary to API, and like this is something me and Cedric talk about like all the time. Like he'll be like, oh, like, I found this awesome binary that um, like is able to enumerate this thing that like something TCC related. I'm like, oh, that's awesome, and like. My first thought coming from Windows background is like, what's the API? Like, let's go lower. But what's like, TCC that's mean? not even needed. Uh, Cedric can go over TCC and better than me, probably. <laughs> it's, uh, it's Max. Um, priv- I'll just summarize and say privacy settings. So one okay. of the controls Apple rolled out was to put the power in the hands of the user to determine what source programs can access their certain directories that are protected, mm, like there's okay. documents, downloads, and desktops, for example. So if there's a source program and it's trying to read from those protected directories, the OS has a database. And what it does is it, it queries the database to say, hey, has this program been given access here? If uh, not, then it blocks it. If it has been given access, it grants it. If no decision has been made at all, it'll do a pop-up to the user to say, hey, mm. do you want this source program to access files here? And then there's some set of like basically you could you can do the uh, 
Lobin type thing to where you find uh, a binary that's built in that already is approved to do things and you can coerce it to run arbitrary code, basically. Yeah. And, or if you can inject uh, into a binary, then uh, you would inherit all those TCC permissions. Gotcha. Interesting. So is this, uh, you know how like Windows have has undocumented APIs? Is Mac OS, like since their APIs aren't documented, when they roll out updates, are those APIs due to change? Like, have you guys ever had code update the window, update your Mac like host, and it's all of a sudden it just like shits the bed because the API just doesn't work the way you want it to anymore? Um, I've had code like of APIs I've called in Swift, and then those APIs have been deprecated, and there's yeah, like something that. that they've moved to. So it's then like, okay, well, now what's the new, what's the replacement for this and how do I call it? But I will say that that's probably the rare, rare cases. Most of the time it seems to, to work across versions, but I've seen it happen. That's kind of like the double-edged sword for the, uh, the vendor, right? So like for Apple, it's because like we all, we all kind of like crap on uh, Microsoft because it's like their, their desire to maintain backwards compatibility and avoid breaking changes causes them to have many security issues right because it's like well we have people that have production code that's running on this old version and we don't want to break that because that could be catastrophic um and that ends up being a bad thing but then it's like we're kind of like damn it apple why are you changing this thing and now i have to update my code which kind of is like what we're demanding from microsoft but then we're mad at apple for doing it to some degree <laughs> yeah like on the windows side like malware like malware developers or post exploitation developers will write tooling once and usually it's just going to keep working because like microsoft's really about that backwards compatibility but i know like cody thomas like um he wrote like the appfil agent it's like mm -hmm. that jxa agent that hooks into mythic i know that like between like um i, I forget which Mac OS versions, but he had to entirely update his code base because, like, uh, between some major release of Mac OS, like the Objective C API calls he was calling under the hood, like slight things had changed about them, and so like the agent was just not working at all on newer versions. And so he went back, and he's crazy for because app one like JXA is terrible to write in, uh, okay. and it's there's no documentation. Development of the JXA language was abandoned by the Apple team, oh, so Cody's just a masochist and. Yep. He went 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 in and updated his agent to work for like the newer version of Mac OS. Like he's is, crazy. Is one of the values of writing an agent in JXA that it evades gatekeeper because it's a scripting thing? Is that true? Yep. It's okay. definitely um at least as of this release, they don't check uh gatekeeper won't check JXA. So gotcha. that is definitely yeah. a bit you just have to find a way to get it initially executed, right? Mm. So that initial access might be, I don't know, an office uh, macro to get it downloaded or an app that once you click a button on the app, it spawns it and it runs your JXA. Okay, so it seems like uh, maybe there's, we haven't talked about this, but maybe there's two, like, um, I'm trying to think of the book that, uh, so Jeffrey Snover, who is one of the, like, the main creator of PowerShell, and he's a, uh, I don't know. Technical. It's like the poor man's PowerShell. He's like the technical architect, uh, technical something, high schmuckety schmuck at, at Microsoft now. Um, he he was like referencing this book called called The Goal, right? Um, and the whole thing is like, anytime that you have a, a complex system, you're going to have some, uh, there's this idea called a theory of constraints. And like, anytime you have a complex system, you're going to have uh, at least one um, bottleneck in the system right so there's one there's going to be one place that's like slowing you down right and potentially you have more and once you clear up the first one you're going to realize that there's other ones that exist um but there, there's potentially a bottleneck in like the attacker's process for uh, targeting mac os and i suspect that that's lateral movement 
Like there's there's probably a discrete number of methods of lateral movement that are available to attackers. Is yeah. that true? I think it kind of depends on like how you want to define lateral movement. So if you if you mean from like one Apple device to another, you're yep. probably right. But if you're talking about like enterprise lateral movement, there's a lot of options there. Like there's, you mm-hmm. know, you think about what en- how engineers use their Macs. You know, they store a lot of them will store SSH keys, they'll store cloud credentials, API tokens. So you think about the potential there, and, and a lot of those files, unless they're stored in a TCC protected directory, like users' documents, downloads, desktop, for example, a lot of times those those files are those credentials are not stored there. They're mm-hmm. stored in non-protected TCC protected locations. Meaning, if as long as you have non-sandboxed access to Mac, you can easily grab those keys and you can pivot on uh, to other parts of the environment. And for me as a red teamer, that's kind of my my personal preference. I actually prefer not to stay on a Mac endpoint long. Um, I'd rather grab what I need and move on to the cloud and or, or you know, uh, other systems I can abuse where I know the optics are probably a lot weaker as opposed yep. to hanging out on a Mac. Yeah, okay, so um, what, basically what you're saying, if I, if I kind of like rephrase, um, just to make sure that I'm tracking, you, the idea is, is that um, moving from one Mac to another is probably relatively com- like complicated. Like maybe you, I, I've heard of like, maybe you use Jamf, which is kind of like the uh, SCM kind of uh, appliance that you use for deploying out like wide scale configuration type stuff. Maybe like you could take over Jamf potentially. And then yep. once you have that, now you could deploy whatever package you want to whatever system. And now you have complete control of the environment. Um, but alternatively, what you can do is you can look for um, any like SSH keys to infrastructure or other systems or like servers. So like, a, uh, for instance, like some developer might have uh, an SSH key to access like a Windows server. And then now you're pivoting into the Windows environment or they might have something to like some cloud cloud server or some cloud instance that you can pivot into. And like, let's let's face it, like it's, this is this might show my naivete, I guess, but like, it seems like in the cloud, it's like authentication logs. And beyond that, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of, uh, telemetry sources. Luke, I feel like you might know more about this actually than than I do about like cloud telemetry and detecting cloud. I know specifically about AWS. Uh, okay. Uh, but like, uh, like oh, oh, sorry, go ahead, Luke. I thought. No, I, I was just going to say like um, outside of actual host based monitoring on the hosts that are in AWS, it's not like you can really install a third party thing. Even the third-party solutions that exist are just taking CloudWatch logs or Azure logs that they're like running some sort of IQ on them and funneling them somewhere else. But you're 100% at the mercy of what the cloud provider decides to give to you when it comes to logging, which in AWS is quite a lot. In Azure, it's what Microsoft decides is important, which might be different than what you think is important, but it's uh, you're definitely at their mercy. Gotcha. It's, it's interesting, too, because that's what sort of makes the, the cloud side of it. Um, and I'm, I have more experience with AWS side, but makes it a bit challenging because a lot of times it boils down to permissions, right? So you get you get AWS credentials for a certain role. One of the first things you do on the offensive side is you check to see do you have access to any, any other roles, right? Hmm. And then can, can I assume into those other roles and once if you can you assume into a new role now you have a new set of credentials and uh it's not like you're you know landing on an ec2 host and abusing it which you totally could 
but just thinking about the privilege escalation paths that yeah. are available in the cloud using built-in functionality um, where you can kind of hop from maybe dev to corp to prod using very similar techniques like that. And if there's no uh, awareness in the environment of like what roles should have access to what other roles and things like that, it becomes hard to kind of track what happened. There, can we? Oh, go ahead. There was a pretty high profile breach in which that happened, which uh, if you're familiar with the, uh, the networking company of Ubiquity, like I have that installed in my house. I know Jared has it in his, but they had an AWS breach um, where essentially someone had access to something through a misconfiguration of their permissions that they just simply weren't aware of. Because uh, like you, you're saying, a lot of these attacks and privilege escalation paths in stuff like AWS is not, you're not exploiting some fancy O-Day that you found in AWS's like backend infrastructure. It's just, we have 6,000 accounts. They're all nested. There's all these different roles. Um, and even the company that set them up isn't quite sure the bloodhound problem it's like just yeah there are permissions nested permissions on nested permissions groups everyone's part of different groups people are handling like whitelist or blacklist for permissions in aws and so like things are just in like misconfigured everywhere there like there is a path from a to b right if you have more than a certain number of roles and accounts in aws i mean if you're just rocking your own little dev account that's not the case but uh like you guys are saying just just as it is in in uh, ADFS with Bloodhound, there is a way. Someone just has to find it. Yeah. One I, one thing I, I almost wanted... feel like red teamers were forced, like uh, like on macOS engagements, red teamers were forced to go into the cloud, like from a macOS host, because by default, like on macOS, like there are kind of two ways that you can remotely control a macOS system. One, you can SSH into it. Two, you can use like Apple's like VNC ish protocol. But these are both like disabled by default. And like enterprise, of course, is not going to enable it. Um, and so like we're pretty much if you land on a macOS endpoint, you're either stuck on the endpoint and you can pivot to cloud using like um uh keys on disk or things like that, or you can like dump users like browser cookies and things like that and then pivot mm -hmm. into the browser. But those are kind of like path of least resistance, like how to get off this system, like browser okay. or like that's, uh, cloud credentials. And that's what I, I was going to ask is like, could we do like a hypothetical, you get access to an arbitrary user's Mac? Like, what do you do? Because like, because uh, like the, the example of like, okay, well, if you're on a devs system, like great, like they're going to have some, some keys and, and all that kind of stuff. But like, if you're just on, you know, rent, like if you're on my Mac, for instance, like I don't, uh, I potentially have like access to SharePoint and maybe access to like Azure, but like, probably not that privileged access i imagine um but like yeah like so what do you do if you just land on a random person's computer you just hope that you land on somebody that's not arbitrary or not random yeah i mean uh just from my perspective the first thing i'm going to do is the situational awareness mm -hmm. right just to see because one of the things you don't want to do on a, on a mac host is burn your your op or burn your access. And one of the quickest ways to do that is like, oh, I'm going to go to this TCC protected directory without knowing if you have access to it. Because if you don't, and um, the data, like, prompt the user. Had, uh. right, a pop up comes up, and now the user's like, what? Uh, I'm going, I'm taking my Mac, Mac to IT or shutting yep. it down. So you lose access. Exactly. So, first thing would be situational awareness on my end to figure out, like, does terminal have full disk access? What folders can it access? And then from there, um, we have some scripts that can kind of check for certain files, like sensitive files that you might want to look for. 
So I wrote a, actually wrote a tool not too long ago called Swift Belt. So it's supposed to be like oh, nice. okay. version yep. of Harm Joy's Seatbelt. Yep. So basically look for sensitive files and do it in an automated fashion and mm. not use command line utility. So it grabs like SSH keys, AWS keys, Azure keys, G Cloud, uh, whatever it can find, it'll grab those and um, and then start looking to pivot. Um, you could also... So hold on. So you're so you're using Swift Belt, which is like probably baked into your agent directly. Right. I have a I have a Swift version and I have a JXA version. Okay. So if we're um, if we're using Mythic, I'll probably just use the JXA version if we're using the app fill payload hmm. and import it, and that way it can kind of do it all inside of Mythic. And you you um, mentioned you could do it without using the tool. So the idea would be you're you're evading the command line auditing because you're doing it from within a, an existing process. Right. Exactly. By, calling, exactly. by calling the APIs or whatever it may be. Exactly. Um, in JXA, there's like, a, or on macOS, there's a framework called OSAKIT. And okay. OSAKIT is basically kind of this uh, framework that lets you interact with like OSA. Like it's essentially the same thing that um, OSA script is doing under the hood. Mm-hmm. And so basically there's, straight up just a function that will just exec and then you pass it like oh is it is this string apple script or is it javascript and so you just do exec javascript you just like send down the entire script load it up into memory in the implant and then you can just call every function from it like very easily uh and to check that's kind of our like in memory that's basically how we do in memory stuff on mac os jxa to to check if you're TCC positive, whatever that like, uh, you have access to those to those directories. TCC positive. positive. I made that up. I know. I've been I've been thinking about that for like two minutes. Um, you there's like a some sort of call you can make to say like, do I have access to this without actually prompting the user to check? Like you you could do that kind of indirectly. Correct. So um, a while back, I was studying how to how can I figure out for full disk access, for example, um, if I have it without tipping my hand to the user because if you go through the file system in normal ways like pop up so uh what i found was it was just some something as simple as doing a check on the user's tcc database like uh, i think my code just does a file size check on it and just doing that simple check it returns based on the result of that it either gives me the file size back or it says not permitted so Mm -hmm. i can read based on the the results returned and say oh no, I don't have full disk access. So using um, techniques like that that won't generate a pop up, uh, I guess one of the that's one of the things I do on my free time is I'll just take my Mac and I'll use the TCC util. So I'll do TCC util reset all for terminal. So okay. basically clear all TCC permissions for terminal, and then I'll just start trying stuff to see like if I'm trying to get to this directory, what's generating pop ups and what's not. Just trying different yeah, things. That's that. That's that's the red team version of the indirect uh, data source, right? So yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Like, or just uh, gonna re- reset the TCC database and just well, run yeah, through it. Well, and see so like, uh, I'm gonna check the size of this file, and if I could, re- if I receive that file, then I could infer from that at, from that receipt that ah. I have access, right? So like, you don't right. actually, you're not actually checking like definitively, do I have access? But you're inferring it from some action that you're able to perform, which is. I mean, it's the same same concept as like if if this registry key is written, then a service exists, then a service yeah, is created. Exactly. Exactly. Sorry, Cedric, I cut you off. You were like you had some other thing that you were going to talk continue talking about. Oh no worries. Um, yeah, I was just kind of mentioning Swift Belt, and I was saying you could also prompt the user. Um, there's a there's built in code using API calls to kind of have a fake pop up, um, kind of like the PowerShell equivalent on mm-hmm. the Mac side to say, hey, like. Keychain needs you to reauthenticate. Can you enter your password? Um, you could do that, um, but you also run the risk of the user saying, huh, 
I don't know about this and, and, and burning access. Um, another thing that Jason hinted, uh, Justin hinted to earlier is you can pull down the TCC database. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the user's keychain database. Mm. Yes. Uh, which is interesting because it is not protected by TCC. So if you've got unsandbox, non sandbox access, um, you can just grab it and download it. You will need uh, to find a way, though, to get the user's password if you want to get into it. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's like when uh, when Apple says, hey, do you want re- do you want me to remember that password for you? And that's the key. Oh, yeah. And then the keychain uh, stores all sorts of things. So it's going to store things like uh, one thing that red teamers love from the keychain is the uh, Chrome safe storage key. So like on Windows, like that's encrypted with DPAPI on, on Mac OS. That's just encrypted by the keychain. OK, and so like keychain are like that stored there. Passwords, certificates. Like all like basically like secret data is stored in the keychain. So the keychain is the precursor to getting then like then it goes to like when Chrome says, hey, do you want me to save that password for you? Uh, if you say yes, if somebody could get access to your keychain, they could get the the encryption key to decrypt the Chrome passwords. Yes, most definitely. Okay. Yeah. OK, so, man. OK, that's, yeah, that's so no I good. know. So I know you're talking about lateral movement and like controlling the Mac host um, through SSH keys like Apple's VNC. Um, I know, I don't know too much about this, but I know Mac has an RPC-like component called XPC. Is that only for local or is that for remote interaction as well? <laughs> it's funny you I mentioned Yeah, XPC is the one thing I haven't dived into. Yeah, we, we haven't, but we've started having discussions like that's probably an area we're going to look into pretty soon. Okay. Because it's, it's a lot of XPC going on in the background anyway, between different components. Like you, you use your thumbprint, that's XPC, and all sorts of little things happening constantly in the background. So it makes for an interesting place to check out. I have a like a kind of a, a what I'm trying to understand how an attack on Windows works. I have kind of a process. It's like you have a tool, right? And a tool is like just a superficial container for some capability, right? Then you have uh, kind of like the API or the function that's called. Then you have uh, inter-process communication. You have like a securable object, which would be like a process, a registry key, a file, all kinds of name pipe, all those types of things. And then you have a network protocol, right? So like uh, when you create a service, you have like, um, you know, create service W as the function call. You have an uh, IPC interface, which would be uh, MS. MSSCMR, which is the service control manager remote protocol, and it has a an RPC uh, protocol like or uh, procedure that's called. Um, and then there's an actual protocol that it goes over, which is like RPC um, or DCE RPC. Um, and then you have the actual securable object, which is like the registry key, right? Um, and so, like, what we're tr- one thing that Johnny's interested in, I think, um, kind of speaking for him, but it seems like this is the direction he's going. Is like, does that thought process or that like hierarchy of abstract uh layers does that like apply to mac yes. os like are there secure is there like a securable object com- like equivalent is uh which i mean conceptually there is right files yeah. for instance um is there an rpc or IPC, ipc uh equivalent which is how do like different processes communicate with each other whether they're yeah. locally or remote that type of thing yeah, it's interesting because, like, um, just for those that don't know, the process that Jared's going to talk about is um, it's called capability abstraction. Um, and the cool thing about this process is being able to break down the different components as it relates to whether it's just an action in general and whether you relate that to a technique. Most of the time, 
that that modeling is done. Um, but what's interesting is each layer in my head is another detection opportunity. Yep. Um, in, so, in some cases, it's not even a detection opportunity. It could be a preventative opportunity, right? So like if you see that maybe like if you could change the permissions to um, a securable object in a way, um, then someone couldn't access it. And that one might be a way to go. But again, like I think by default in my head, each layer is as it goes down, typically it's more quote unquote broad on the detection scale, not all the times, but it can be right. Um, and also I think a lot of times as we go down in that scale, the harder it is to somewhat get telemetry into um, and the more correlation that needs to be done. The, and so the lower, the lower the resolution of the telemetry. Precise, that's, yeah, that's a great yeah. way to put it. Yeah. And so um, I know this component exists just because like through my, like literally Microsoft called it out in their documentation. When I Googled it, there wasn't just much about it. So I was just like curious um, how that was done. Because one thing that Cody taught me a long time ago when I was wearing inspector was there's a local KDC, like we talk about like key distribution centers. There's like a local KDC on Max, um, which is like different than I guess than like Kerberos authentication KDC, which is on domain controller. And it's very interesting because like all these components exist. It's just like it's not documented. So this is like a transition into I think we've been in the podcast long enough. I kind of go into a juicy topic here. Oh, so, hold, on, hold on, hold on. I wanted to ask a, um, or I wanted to add to your comment before you ahead. change subjects. Yeah. So the, the interesting thing is like, from a detection perspective, it's like uh, the lower I get, the better, the the more robust my detection is to evasion, yeah. right? Um, but potentially you're doing a trade-off where you're getting lower resolution telemetry because you're not getting as much context. So like if I get a 7045, I'm getting more information than if I just know that a service was like a registry key was written, for instance. Yeah. Um, to that point too, Jared, not, and forgive me for interrupting you, but um, I think what he's also alluding to is as you go down that, that um, resolution, the more prone you are to quote unquote false positives as well in the terms of yeah. like wanting to find the things that you want. Like, for example, we started the process level specifically a command line. Like that's pretty like that's not not going to really shouldn't like push out a lot of like if you're looking for info, maybe catch something, for example, like that's unless someone's doing some weird shit in your environment that shouldn't be happening but then like if you go all the way down into like the rpc layer like there are a lot of methods which you can think of those as functions with an rpc um that will call over that interface and so that interface might be being interacted with a lot and so due to that for like normal functionality like that is what the majority of like um components utilized inside of microsoft is that rpc component like that was literally common rpc was made for developers yeah yeah so where i was going was the like the interesting thing about that abstraction those abstraction layers so like tool function ipc mechanism securable object network protocol is the attacker can choose to enter that abstraction at any of those layers right so like i can just use mimikatz yeah. right or i can write my own tool that calls the same api functions or I could write a tool that doesn't call the API functions at all, and I just call the RPC uh, the the RPC procedure. Or I could write a tool that just uh, you know makes a Kerberos request to request a service ticket, right? So like I could enter at any of those layers that I want, and that's like the the idea is, is that the higher up in the in the in the abstraction map basically that you are, the more prone you are to false negatives, but the less prone you are to false positives, right? So they're they're inversely proportional to some degree. And also but, the higher you yeah. enter on that, um, not to figure off Jerry, but like also 
the more of those components you have to interact with because it has to go um, it has to go through that funnel down and so that means the attacker you mean exactly yeah my bad yeah so the more data is going to correlate with each one of those components which might allude to the activity that you're doing yep yep and then as the defender the lower you go the less prone you are to false negatives which are like the attacker is able to perform the the attack without being noticed right but the more prone you are to false positives and the less less resolution you have in the telemetry that you're generating but um the the other question is is like just because i've established each of those layers doesn't mean that i have a valid telemetry source for that layer right which is that's always like this weird like what i always say is like you should know all the layers and you should know all your telemetry options but you have to once you know them all now you now the the work has to be has to be like um you're ultimately trying to manage the problem you're not trying to solve the problem because there's no right answer like you have to you have to choose like what are my constraints and what's going to like meet my constraints the best that i can which is like i want to you know, hopefully I want to detect when bad guys are here, but I also can't just detect everything because I, you know, I have constrained resources. I don't have infinite amount of analysts and that type of thing. Yeah. And to that, to that point, like that decision comes with an assumption and that assumption correlates with a specific type of risk. And so you have to kind of like accept that risk when you make that assumption, when it comes to that detection kind of logic there. Yep. So So now you could change subjects. All right. So I think we're in the podcast long enough. So I always have to. Still... I always have to stop Johnny because he's like a subject changer. So I'm always like, hey, yeah. whoa, 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 I'm not. Yeah. Done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm bad about that. So it's like I always like to bring up something like juicy at the end of the podcast. So, um, and I've been thinking about this the whole podcast. So, due to the fact of like low documentation, um, at Mac, um, and this does kind of correlate with the OST debate in the sense of we talk about oftentimes like the more Luke, stop staring at me, bro. Um. The like we often see like whenever malicious tooling quote unquote gets put out or dev tooling gets put out, um, that gives attackers more of a way to weaponize components and interfaces. But due to my Apple not actually documenting these different components, could the bit be flipped in the sense of red team tooling, like development scripts, things like that, like the things that like you guys put out and like Cody put out, equally help defenders in the sense of understanding what those components are and then knowing what they can detect or even tooling that they can then create because otherwise they wouldn't have known about it. Yeah. Um, I guess I'll, I'll jump out there and speaking from the fact that I, I came from a defensive background and used to be incident response and threat detection. Um, I, I guess I'll say it this way. I understand both sides like of the, the argument. And I think there's some truth on both sides. But for me, just thinking about my career, especially as a defender, I valued the opportunity to, to see red team tooling, red team blog posts, because what it did is for me, it, I guess prior to me seeing that, I thought kind of had a, self, a false sense of security. Like, well, I, to our best ability, you know, that this environment secure, we've, we've detected X, Y, and Z. We've got these controls in place. And then I read the blog post and I'm like, oh man, I didn't even think about, you know, you can come in from this angle now. And, yeah. You've got to start over. <laughs> and so I think yeah. there is value that can be applied to blue teams um, as well as to other red teams with the research we're doing, because like we all alluded to, uh, Apple's documentation is what it is. And good luck to a defender just trying to start off with with um, using, the, the, I guess, the limited resources to them and having high fidelity protection. So yeah. I think it is something that's positive that is driving positive change on the Mac OS side. Awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I pretty much agree with Cedric. Like, I understand that like releasing offensive security tools like definitely decreases the cost of for like offense or like bad malicious people to do bad things. But it's it's not very hard to develop offensive tooling like to write a rat and things like that. Like malicious like developers and malware developers like they're out there. They're writing their own stuff. Like this, it works both ways. It, it can be used offensively. It's definitely dual use. It can be used offensively. It can be used defensively. But like Cedric was saying, like if you write this offensive tooling, you're bringing capability to light for one vendors to like write detections for two defenders to easily like utilize and like write their own custom detections. Cause like we know that like ESF is there and like there's all these events, but there's not lots of built in detections for like kind of like offensive techniques. And so by releasing these different tools, like defenders can go use them, like look for ESF events, write custom detections and potentially even share those with the community for like Absolutely. an even wider like a widespread kind of, um, yeah, just widespread. I find the like lowering the cost for the bad guys argument to be lacking to some degree because like, I, and this is, I, I feel like Justin, you and I have a relationship that this is not, this is me literally not trying to be demeaning, but like you're an individual and like if you've written yeah. something that can do this, then like it's safe to assume that, you know, a funded adversary that's making money through ransomware or whatever, um, would be capable of doing the same thing, right? So like, yeah, that's not, I'm in agreement. Yeah, it's 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 I I don't I don't really know how like I I can see the argument of there is a subset of organizations which could potentially be a very large subset of organizations that does not have a defensive capability to actually leverage the knowledge from that that could be gained, right? Uh, from from like OST or like your your work, for instance. Um, like and that, that's probably true but i don't think and like and i think that that could potentially be a valid argument right but i don't think that the argument yeah. should be the you're lowering the cost for the adversary because i don't i don't i don't know that the cost is that great because like for instance you're just one person and you do like you yeah. do this in your spare time so yeah, what, one thing I, I find very valuable is um i think every action or potential action has many different variants um and what i see oftentimes with tooling is that it's kind of scoped to one variant. So if you start to, or maybe like depending on like the parameters you pass through, you might be able to support many different variants of the same type of activity or actions. And so what I see with this tooling is like the ability to further my research, improve, hey, like X can happen in these different ways, find the commonality or the root between them. And then I can start to leverage that as a defender. But otherwise, unless like the actual org is documenting, and when I say org, I mean Apple, right? Is like actually documenting these functions so that other people can actually in, have insight to them. Like the visibility is basically null, right? It's not, it just doesn't exist. And so what these, this tool allows, um, this tooling allows us to do is actually have insight into those components. And then like, I like for example, I know Richie Cyrus, can, uh, uh, I believe it was Venator, that I think is the name of the, the functionality. Yeah, but awesome tool. Amazing, phenomenal, right? And so um, I think part of that like was built because there was offensive tooling that was utilizing some of the same functionality. And so he was able to go and do point in time collection and kind of do that investigation and like forensics type stuff there. Right. And so I think that's very valuable. And like, again, that could be transferred over to the windows piece, but I think also um, it's kind of like what people's like intentions are. And like, I, I'm not in the business of like, like, I don't know, making the decision of what people's intentions are. Um, but what I think is like, there's always a positive outlook to have on that. 
And if I look at a tooling, I a, then have the POC that I can utilize and kind of test my detection optics and coverage. But also that's a piece of like code that I can dive deep into that will give me the understanding of what those components are being done and how to dive even deeper into that. I think there's, yeah. uh, Justin, you, you want to go? Oh yeah, I got, I got something. Yeah, like, go for it. Um, what is it? Um, Cody Thomas's app fell. So like that JXA agent, like that was kind of what put JXA and offensive JXA and like even that OSIS script binary on the map for offensive tooling. And now yeah. like various vendors are flagging OSIS script. Like when you have, when you run OSIS script with certain command line arguments, like that is being flagged by vendors. And so vendors are building detections on this. And like, I think as time goes on and like offensive techniques improve, like, um, more more and more ESF events are going to be like put out for like specifically for these like kind of um, offensive techniques. And this is just going to drive offense and defense deeper. Like I said earlier, like um, Mac OS is like pretty high level of detections right now. Like we're looking for like, they're looking for like known malicious binaries. Like Cedric the other day actually found like a cool binary that helps us do like situational awareness, but like there's not much documentation of this offensive technique anywhere, but like, uh, if he decides to publish it or whatever, like eventually that knowledge is going to be out there that, hey, this binary can be used by attackers to uh, situationally like kind of do situational awareness. And like eventually that binary is going to be flagged. And then that's going to eventually drive attackers lower and lower. Like now attackers are going to have to do all API calls. And then yeah. Apple is going to have to either start hooking API calls or like make kind of hooking of those API, call, API calls easier. And like mm -hmm. offense and defense is just going to drive, drive, drive. Yeah. The value there is perspective, I think, also. Like, I've kind of realized how valuable, you know, perspective is. And if someone writes a tool or actually dives deep into this component and, like, releases it, that's perspective that I never had before. And I think there's, uh, like, so, like, there's there's two. So, I think it's safe to say that in the OST debate, both sides have valid arguments, yes. right? Yep. Um, like, it, I think it's my perspective. Anybody who's, like, that side's dumb. Um, is is probably not thinking about this in a nuanced enough fashion, right? Um, it's not. It's a false dichotomy. I don't think it needs to be Agreed. either. Um, but I think there's there's uh, just because there's a valid point on both sides doesn't mean that the solution is obvious, right? So like um, like one of the solutions that's proposed is basically like we shouldn't be there. There's you know nine. We'll say ninety nine percent. Everybody likes to talk about the one percent, right? But like that's just a a moniker, right? But the, there's only one percent of organizations that are actually able to leverage this information for to like improve their defensive posture. That might not be true in the Mac OS space because like Mac OS organizations that have like high levels of Mac OS are typically tech companies which have a large investment in security in the first place. So like that may actually be not true in Mac OS. I don't know. I have n no data to back that up, but that's like my my inferences that that's probably not true. Um, however, it's like I, I don't think that you should hold back the highest performing organizations because other organizations aren't keeping up, right? So there's like a an aspect of like, should we cut out the legs from the 1% so that just everybody's getting owned or should we be pushing the 1% to be better? Well, like you could argue that like the 1% are the biggest companies that would like their breach would have the biggest impact, right? So like you you probably want them to be ahead of the game to some degree, um, but like you don't want to leave people behind. But also there's maybe like maybe the argument isn't hold people back because like the idea of like not having OST would be you you would be by definition holding people back, like holding the highest performers back because they wouldn't have uh, the examples to be able to build off of. Right. Because nobody can make the argument that 
there aren't organizations that are getting value from OST. Like there, there definitely are. But the argument is, is that uh, more people are being hurt by OST than than are benefiting. Right. That that's the argument. I don't know how you. you there's no data that actually supports that. Right. Like I don't know how you would get the data for that. Um, but it's maybe a safe assumption. We'll say. Um, but maybe yeah. this maybe the solution is like democrat like we need to find a better way to democratize the um the lessons that are learned from ost right so like something like building it into and making esf better would be democratizing or like uh when yeah. you come up with an with an uh gatekeeper bypass how can we make gatekeeper better or like if apple has uh builds in the ability to like just stop osa script stuff from happening i don't i don't know much about that but like if they just like stop that from happening naturally um or like create some extra barrier then that's democratizing that's being delivered to every mac os customer not just the top one percent so there's like a question of uh as we're pushing the one percent further how do we make sure that that like you know i i don't i i am uh hesitant to say like the uh filter down economics type thing but um how do we like make sure that that gets democratized back to like every customer which i think ultimately has to be on apple to fix so it's I like think, um, a positive trend that, that i'm enjoying seeing and i think specter ops is honestly at least in my opinion in the forefront of that a few years ago which was People do writing offensive uh, blog posts and releasing tools, actually including actionable um, detection guidance. With that, yeah. um, I did want to call that out. I think that's a positive trend that, that a lot of you all expect out to start, and I'm seeing it now more common. And I, I do think that is helping. Um, and it's also like when I was on the defensive side, I did see adversaries uh, who were using you know some open source tools, but I've also seen adversaries who went complete custom. Yep. As a defender, I can tell you that we had a much better response rate, you know, when the defender, uh, when the adversary was using open source tools, oh, then yeah. they went completely off the grid and used something custom. Oh, boy. So to me, even that that argument, that's um, uh, not whole, you know, that's I have a whole question, series of questions, which is like it's basically confirmation bias. Right. So it's like uh, when people talk about Cobalt Strike, for instance, they say something like, um, you know, Cobalt Strike is used in like 75% of attacks or like, I'm just making these numbers up, but it's like, yeah, well, like you don't know what the denominator, like there's no way to actually know the denominator for the total number of attacks. And so like what you're telling me is that of the attacks that you detected, Cobalt Strike is used in 75% of, of, of those attacks. It's like that could, you could view that negatively, which is like Cobalt Strike is ubiquitous in attacks, or you could view it as we're only detecting this because Cobalt Strike is being used in the attacks. Which like yeah, it's a faulty it it like percentage. Like, well, it could it's be read. It statistic. could. It could be read from both sides. It could be read as like Cobalt Strike's the best thing for security because we're hurting everybody to use Cobalt Strike and we're able to detect Cobalt Strike because we know what it is. But like, you have no denominator for what the total number of attacks are. I I do see that people like talk about that in the context of ransomware, which like presumably you know about all ransomware attacks because the whole purpose of ransomware is to <laughs> notify end, you end, that, that it happened. Right. So maybe that's maybe that's a, like a more apt example where it's like 75 percent of ransomware attacks use Cobalt Strike. Well, it's safe to assume that 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 is actually 75 or close close to 75 yeah. percent of all ransomware attacks. Um, but it's like, I, I don't know, it's like you're just talking about general attacks. It's like that's more indicative probably of like Cobalt Strike being a net positive. Right. Because yeah. like you're you you're only detecting the things that you know about. You're not like. For for all we know, we we just absolutely suck at detecting things that we don't know about. And so the only things that we know 
are when attackers use open source things. And so like, thank God some, for some reason, attackers have decided to start using open source things. I don't, I don't know, but, um, I think also like I had a cousin reach out to me a while back and was like, Hey, like, I think she got in some Facebook argument with somebody, which is dumb anyways, but she was essentially like, are cyber attacks more prevalent now than they were like 20 years or like 10 years ago or five years ago? And I was like, I have no data to back any of that up. Like, like I think optics over time has like generally gotten better. And so, and it's also like a focal point right now as well in the sense of what everybody's looking at. So that's kind of like a big topic. And I think that's why people are like talking about it a lot more, but essentially there's no data to say like, are there, x amount more attacks today than there were five years ago i don't have an answer for that and so what i think what open source tooling allows me to do is um gives me the ability to apply detections at different levels on the scale um and so whether that is a precise scale or whether that's a little more broad medium like behavioral scale or even just like really broad and just like looking for something just kind of just anomalous right and so um, and diving deep into the different components in the sense of like, okay, like I know this Win32 API can be called, but that actually, they can actually just call an undocumented API and then, okay, cool. And now I, well, I can kind of monitor for that as well in some sense. Or like, hey, like this kernel functionality is being used. Well, hey, shit, there's kernel callbacks, right? And so I can leverage that. But like in the Mac side, that's unknown really, right? Like there's not a lot that we can leverage. And so the in my opinion, like the only thing that's really there right now is open source tooling and documentation and i'm very much appreciative of that you know what i mean yeah there's um so phil venables who i believe is the CISO for google um anyway whatever phil venables that's the name uh wrote a blog post that i that i keep referring back to called something along the lines of like the uncanny uncanny valley of cybersecurity or something along those lines and so the uncanny valley is like this concept in robotics which is like um humans will accept like robots as long as they don't look like humans but that like at some point we will ex- like we will stop accepting them right and so like uh if if a robot looks just like like if cedric were a robot and i knew that he was a robot i'd be like no get that thing away from me right because it's not one of us um and so there's this idea that like uh we're kind of like don't care don't care don't care and then like it becomes like so weird that we like we really don't care and then like it just skyrockets and now we like now we're really sensitive to it um but they, like the uncanny valley of cybersecurity, the way that he proposes it, if I'm thinking about it correctly, is like uh, you're kind of like living in this naive world to where you don't you don't actually measure things properly, right? And so like you think everything's good. And to your point, Johnny, it's like, are we more aware of attacks because like we just happen to be more capable now? And so like it seems like there's more attacks because we actually have the ability to like find them, um, or are there actually more attacks? And the question is, is like. With the uncanny valley of cybersecurity, the idea is it's like things are going to appear to get worse before they get better. Because once you start measuring things, you're going to realize that it was worse. Like it will, it will be, it's worse than you thought it was. And now that you're measuring it, you will be aware of how bad it actually is. And it's not that it's worse than it was to begin with. It's just now that you, now you like kind of, you know, lifted the sheet over from over your eyes and now you're aware. You have the optics into it now, basically. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I think that's uh that's pretty much the end of our time, the hour and a half. That was actually that was that was great, man. We I think we went into some really technical stuff. We went into some philosophical stuff. I think we we cover lots of topics. Um we had some some good drinks. I know that Baja Blast uh and vodka. 
Baja, Baja Blast and Vodka was Justin's choice. A uh, uh, trademark, yeah. by the way. Don't don't say yep, my boys. Yep, yep. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Cedric and Justin, we really appreciate you guys being on the podcast. And uh, thanks for thanks for everything you do. And thanks for sharing your thoughts and ideas with us. And uh, look forward to talking to you in the future. Yeah, guys. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Awesome, dudes. And- yeah, thanks for having us on. I, like, I had a great time. And I think like lots of cool like technical tidbits and like knowledge was spread out that are going to help people and like yep. are going to be useful to people. And like, to me, yeah. that's super valuable. I'll be honest. This is probably the, the most naive about a topic that I've been in any of our podcasts. So I like, I, I learned a decent amount yeah, during too, this yeah. conversation. <laughs> so, and it's, re- it's kind of, it's really hard too. Cause like my knowledge is mostly windows based. And so when I'm like trying to transfer it over to the Mac, it's like, well, does it actually work that way? I don't know. It's, it's so, funny yeah. because like the whole, the whole time, like as a, as a Mac person, I know Richie, uh, Cyrus used to have to deal with this. It's like everything that you explain, please explain it in the cons, like in the terms of windows. So it's like P list. It's like, yeah, that's kind of like the registry or, exactly. uh, you know, gatekeeper. Oh, it's like, you know, whatever. And it's like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta like refer it back to windows so that all of us, you know, noobs understand what's <laughs> going on. Yeah. It's it's so funny because like I obviously came from a Windows background doing lots of red teaming at Spectrops and other consultancies, mm-hmm. but like at the end of Windows the day, computers was... are all very similar. Like they have underlying concepts that are similar, and so like me picking up macOS, like I thought it would be much more difficult, but like I don't know, a process is a process, you know, a file is a file. Like yeah. at the end of the day, like everything is just so like similar, and like yeah. I found it really easy to pick up. So like I encourage other people, like if you're doing Windows stuff, like try Mac stuff sometime. Like there's a lot of cool stuff and like lots and lots of undiscovered stuff. Like Windows, like Jared said at the beginning of the podcast, there is AD knowledge, Kerberos knowledge, deep API knowledge all over the internet. Mac OS, like you're pulling for straws and like you might find some cool stack overflow post that does something cool that like offense doesn't know about at all. And like maybe just some hackers or like sysadmins were just using this as like some hack to like administer stuff. And then you're like, wait, this is offensive. Like this needs to be like, we need yeah. telemetry on this, et cetera. Like there's, it's a gold mine of stuff out there for Mac there's, OS. There's like a little bit of a catch 22, which is, uh, there's more, dis- more to discover on Mac, but there's less to learn from. Right. Yeah. So like there's less resources to learn from, but there's, you less, gotta do the digging. You gotta, yeah. you gotta be willing to like do the digging. And if you could do that, there's going to be gold at the end of the time. Like there's, you're going to find the big gold nuggets and in, in yeah. like windows. I think of like, as a kid, I went to Alaska and we did gold, like panning for gold. And when you like when you found your gold, it was like this little like small thing that you could barely see, right? That's that's the Windows side. If you're if you're on uh if you're on Mac OS, you're gonna find a nugget that's like this big, right? So like yeah, you're absolutely. you got the the upside's like it, way just, way bigger. Just like Cedric's like uh gatekeeper bypass, like how yeah. at a high level, how simple is that? Just like replacing something that like replacing a binary with a script and boom, like you have this giant bypass, whole CVE, like there's always, so much to always be found simple in, in like, retrospect i guess but yeah 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 yeah, 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 yeah. it's <laughs> yeah. a simple so like conceptually the attack yeah. is simple it's like you didn't have to dive super deep you're like you just had to be curious and like try something and boom cv yeah, like one sure. thing i've always been interested in that's kind of why i brought it up is like uh xpc is like i one of these days my dream is like just become knowledgeable enough about windows and just take like a six-month period and just like dive into xpc but you know if someone puts it out first, yeah i'm like someone can put put it up for me Shout out, thanks. But you know, it's always interesting. Cool dudes. Well, thanks again. Um, and like I said, hopefully we'll chat again soon. Yep. Thanks, guys. All right, dudes. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Cedric, for staying up late. I know it's yeah. way late for you, man. Shout out to Cedric. I'm surprised I'm still awake, man. Uh, He's on uh, Hawaii time. Yes. Though. 
<laughs> Sleep tight, man. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Detection Challenging Paradigms. If you want to keep up with us, you can do so on Twitter at DCP the Podcast or on our website, dcppodcast.com, where you'll find links to all previous episodes and their episode guides, as well as to our store, where 100% of our proceeds benefit charity. Uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next one. Thank you.